0: No one has ever shown the human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming.
1: We have a massive power, and it's the power to say no.
2: They, they put all these words on these flies, and it means nothing. It, it's, it's garbage.
1: We're all going to die. If doctors are gaslighting patients, if you keep silent, then this is what's going to happen. And they'll make us silent.
0: I would rather paper cut my eyelids than have an <laughs> with <doctors>. <laughs> We are one people. One flag, one Australia.
2: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the S Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp. Adam, welcome back. You went with us yesterday. You had good <laughs> day, Stephen. How you going? Are
1: you, feeling, are you feeling okay, mate? Oh uh, yeah, not too bad. Thanks, um, thanks for all the um, viewers who sent messages, and um, a few people gave me a call to make sure that I was okay. So that's pretty cool. So um, thank you to all you guys. You know who you are. Face is a bit numb still. We can see it's a little bit swollen, but um, you know that's what happens when you kind of get like a dental surgery, you know, sprung upon you one night before the uh, the big show. So, um, but anyway, I'm back today. So thanks for all your thoughts, and um, hopefully the swelling goes down and the pain eases up a fair bit. So uh, we'll be all right. Well, I got
2: to say you missed out on a really important uh, discussion yesterday with Chris Martinson. It was uh, I was amazed at. Uh, how much expertise he has across so many different subjects. He was really, really interesting. So I know it was coming at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Not many people were online at that time, but, you know, we had to fit in with his schedule in America. So uh, I really encourage people to head over to our Rumble and uh, jump on and watch that episode. I think he raised a lot of good points.
1: To steal somebody's line from the movie industry, if you watch one episode of The Ex-Candidates, watch that one and then watch all the other ones after it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we are coming live at the moment on uh, Facebook and YouTube and Rumble. If you're on Facebook and uh, YouTube, you can comment. Uh, We'll also put the link in the chat later on if you want to join us and uh, ask our special guests some questions. Uh, And Adam, we're also uh, on Buy Me A Coffee. I'll put the link to Buy Me A Coffee in the chat in a moment, but we are going really well on Buy Me A Coffee um i've told you about some of them we had uh we had uh three coffees bought by someone uh, they've just put their name as someone i, I know who they are because i can tell by their email but uh i you know thank you to someone i don't know if they want their name disclosed harry bought us five coffees wow uh, thank you know. harry harry said i do enjoy your podcast always i uh always interesting and informative i'd Would love to interview Craig Kelly. Well, we have reached out to Craig Kelly. We haven't had the opportunity to interview him yet, so hopefully that will happen in the future. But uh, get this, Adam. I haven't told you about this one. Kim bought us 20 coffees this week. 20
1: coffees. Yep. Wow. Thank you, Kim.
2: She said, I love this podcast and I love what you do. I can't always watch, but I listen. Truth, integrity, and questioning, everything. Fan Fan for life, keep it up
1: wonderful thank you very much kim that's why we do it we really do do it because um anka down there once we introduce him he he'll know for sure that we don't pay him to uh have his topics because there's no money on the table we certainly aren't getting paid to do anything like that all we try to do and Stephen and i kind of made a bit of a deal with ourselves um you know is kind of like it's about getting factual information from experts so We have a slight political background, Stephen and I, so we can kind of steer it towards politics and and bits and pieces here and a little bit more educated, say, in politics than the average punter. But um, what we try to do is make sure that um, our experts come on and really giving you an honest, um, whether you believe it or not or agree with it or not, but they give you their honest take on what they believe their information and their expertise and their um, research has led the way that it's led them. So um, that's what we do try to do, and thank you very much for the appreciation. Um, It always helps people like us to um, keep this kind of thing happening.
2: And we really do appreciate it. It means so much to know that people are willing to give up their hard-earned money just to support us. And, hey, I mean, that pays the subscription to StreamYard for a few months, and uh, it really means a lot. So thank you for everyone. Out there. But on tonight's episode, we have a very special guest. and I'm really excited about this one because this is going to be a topic that we can really delve into. And uh, I'm, I'm sure this expert will be able to shape uh, our opinions a little bit more on this topic. But uh, his name is Anka Sahin. He's a political commentator and immigration law expert. Prior to committing himself to a career in immigration, he worked for the, Europe- the European Union both in development development related projects and as a professional translator and interpreter and he taught English in New Zealand and in Turkey and in various schools and universities. Anka holds a bachelor's degree in politics, French and European studies, a master's degree in international relations and a fellow and he is a fellow at a number of professional organizations including the Migration Institute of Australia, the Institute of Managers and Lenders Australia New Zealand and the Chartered Institute of linguists in the uk anka speaks several languages including french right. turkish and spanish and of course english and he is a keen traveler having to been to more than 80 countries in all six continents how are you tonight anka welcome to the ex-candidates
0: thank you stephen very well nice to be with you tonight
2: no awesome. it's uh it's a pleasure to have you uh how do you get a, how do you get to 80 countries
0: and is there any that stand out to you I just love traveling. Um, I started when I was at university. Um, my my dad uh, was uh, generous enough to fund my very first trip overseas. Um, he uh, paid uh, f- for flight tickets for me to go to Southeast Asia, and I was away for 80 days. My, my very first overseas trip uh, where I traveled independently, I was uh, 21 at the time. And, um, and I got the travel bug as a result of that and after that um you know once I started earning my own money um, I made a point of uh, trying to do as much travel as possible without spending a whole lot um mm-hmm. you know, cutting down on the on the luxury side of things and just really focusing on the experience and that's what I've pretty much been doing and um and it continued even uh, even after I got married and um, you know had a child and and uh, nowadays sometimes i i go traveling with my six-year-old uh, just the two of us me and the boy wow.
1: wow that's really that's really awesome i've got to be honest with you anka i am not really a good traveler i don't like really leaving Campbelltown. um i have traveled a little bit i mean i've got a european background i've been home to my home like my uh like homeland i guess i'm born in australia but um you know i've been to malta and i've been to a few uh i've been to dubai and a few of those. Uh, uh, where else have I been Amer- to America? And that's about the that's about the sum of it. Um, but ah uh, oh, Bali as well. So it's always, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, Travelling is better education than actually what you get in school because you get to actually live it firsthand. Um, but yeah, I, I my hat goes off to you. I don't know how you can sit in those planes and uh, and and
0: I just don't like I just don't like being that close to people. I guess. <laughs> Oh well, look. You know, I guess yes. Living in Australia, um, you got to put up with those long flights. But once you're once you're over wherever you're going, um, it's uh, you know the, you you realize the world is actually not that big, and you can you can get to other places uh, with minimal effort once you base yourself somewhere uh, a bit more centrally. Um, but yeah, look, it's um to each their own, I guess I, I really do enjoy it, and I become a you know, I find that I become a different person when I travel uh, like normally I'm not a very um, I'm not a morning person at all, I don't like mornings and um, it takes it takes a while for me to get going in the mornings and and things like that, but when I'm traveling, you tell me, I need to get up at four to catch a catch a bus, I will, and it mm-hmm. won't it won't it w- it'll be nothing i I'll, I'll be able to do it without any difficulty whatsoever but um at home i'll just ah oh, yeah I'll, I'll get up like 10 to 10 to 9 and and maybe roll out of bed and start working maybe <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm very exactly different person exactly.
2: <laughs> so so you're a migration specialist how did you fall into that area and why like is it something you're really passionate about
0: well i must enjoy it enough that i've been doing it uh nearly for 20 nearly for 20 years now um i uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, field uh, of, of practice. Uh, I find that a lot of people have fallen into it um, by, um, by chance, and that's exactly what happened with me. Um, back when uh, I was living in New Zealand uh, and my wife was doing her PhD, um, I was doing some teaching at the time, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't on a permanent basis. Um, I was teaching English. I wasn't on a permanent basis, and I was looking for something that, that would be a bit more secure, that would be a bit more permanent, and I came across an ad that was looking for uh, a person to do uh, migration assessments, and, and they said training would be provided. So, you know, I applied, and, and I was very upfront, and I I did tell them I didn't really have any experience in, in, in that field, and they said, uh, don't worry, we prefer people without experience because we want to train them up ourselves in the way we do things here. I'm like, okay, well, that's really good. And, um, and it started off like that, that way. And, um, and then they put me through the course to, to become registered as a migration agent. I, um, at the time, you had to do a, a, distance, a, a distance education course. Um, and, um, and then you had to come to Australia to one of the state capitals to sit the exam. Uh, and um, the exam had a pass rate of about 25%. Um, and um, so it was quite, quite a tough one. Uh, but I did it. I um, I passed and became registered. And after that, um, you know, I enjoyed what I was doing as well. You know, really changing lives, giving people advice on uh, on a life-changing um, decision that uh, they were facing, and um, also re- solving complex problems. You know, that's what um, that's what uh, immigration law is all about. Uh, looking at uh, an issue. Uh, and coming up with a strategy to to see you know how you can best assist uh, a person coming to you for advice. Uh, and sometimes there will be people that you can't assist, and you you have to be upfront and tell them. But um, but it's um it's the type of job, uh, and and especially if you deal with immigration to Australia as uh, as I do, uh, it's it's always dynamic. There's always something happening. Uh, always keeps you on your toes. Um, uh, the field changes. New things happen. Uh, amendments new policies big shakeups, everything there's always some drama you know if even if you go away on holiday for a month and you never look at anything you come back you'll find wow there's so much to catch up on it's that kind of that kind of job and um yeah I definitely enjoy it so yeah I think I'll keep doing it. <laughs>
1: Wow, good on you. That sounds really good. It sounds like it's, well, especially, you know, somebody who loves to travel. I mean, being part of the migration, you know, being a migration specialist, it kind of goes hand in hand because you've got experience of what it's, you know, traveling interstate and seeing different cultures and things like that. So, you know, getting back to helping people move or transition from one country to another, it just seems to me like natural. I don't know, it doesn't seem like a big you know, thing to me like that. It seems like that's what you're made for. So good on you. That's good that you found something that you love. Um, I've got a quick question then So maybe start us off with questions. So um, we've had, um, you know, people who are like economists on and things like that. And they've um, kind of jokingly made mention that they've had to unlearn everything they've learned because it's a completely different world. And then um, what we hear about, you know, immigration and the benefits that the government, you know, the benefit or the government always sprukes the benefits of immigration and mass immigrations and things like that. What are the benefits of having a good, solid um, immigration policy into Australia?
0: Well, um, there, there are several elements uh, to a successful uh, migration policy. And um, uh, what we need to realise first and foremost is um Australia, as a destination country, uh, as a traditional destination country for skilled migrants, uh, is competing with other traditional um, destination countries for the same pool of uh, migrants—people with skills, people who are upwardly mobile, highly mobile um, people who have skills that they can take to any country—and we're trying to attract those those people. Um, and and we have, um, in addition to that, or parallel to that, we have. Uh, some very serious skill shortages in Australia uh, that um, that have been around for for decades, and um, and that we haven't been able to resolve. And some of that is because of um, poor policies that have been followed. Uh, and I can give you uh, an example uh, from uh, accountants, for instance. You know, we've we've had over the last probably ten to fifteen years thousands and thousands of accountants uh, who have use those skills, uh, some of whom were educated in Australia, some of whom uh, had qualifications from overseas, to come to Australia as skilled migrants uh, in that occupation. And somehow, 15 years, 10, 15 years down the track, Australian employers are still screaming out for properly qualified accountants. You've got to wonder, why has um, that skill shortage, that particular skill shortage, not been able to be addressed over the over the last ten to fifteen years, given that we've had so many accountants come through the door um, as skilled migrants. These these people aren't they're not fakes. They they real they have real qualifications. They have some of them have experience, some of them don't. But and there are reasons why that hasn't happened. Um, it, the, the structure of the points test and um, the way for many years um, uh, people who studying in Australia had. Uh, uh, certain advantages in the in the points test that was uh, that that they could benefit from, and and many of those people came in with a view to um, really uh, getting those qualifications and using those qualifications to get permanent residence without really intending to work in those in those fields. Right. So the the whole uh, attempt to address the skill shortage of accountants, and this is one just one occupation. Um, an obvious one that we could we could give as an example um, where it hasn't worked um we, we have been more successful with some other occupations you know uh, especially trades you know we, we we bring in people um who are uh, qualified trades people and by and large they end up working as trades people going forward i think uh, and-
2: i think you've touched on the point because i work in construction and i speak to a lot of different people a lot of migrants come in there'll be surveyors or they'll be traffic controllers or they'll be a number of different occupations and i'll talk to them i say, what what did you do in your country and they'll be like i was a lawyer i was an accountant as you said do you think they're coming to australia and they're going well it's it's tough for me to get a job as an accountant because uh you know they might not be accepting me because i'm i've just immigrated here but i can make a hell of a lot more money in a trade or on a construction site that i ever would making the sort of money in accounting do you think they're gravitating to that sort of area outside of the the industry that they've been in because of the money
0: look i don't know how common that is with accountants um i know that um those people uh who uh study an accounting degree in australia um, and and possibly work uh for a brief period of time uh in um uh, in their field or some of them don't at all um and, and end up getting uh a permanent visa. Uh, many of them go on to to start businesses in other fields. So mm-hmm. um, many of them intend to, uh, um, to to start some sort of business, uh, running their own business. It could be a it could be a cleaning business. It could be a, a business providing uh, you know hospitality services. It could be uh, I don't know um, a real estate agency or whatever it is. But um, many of them intend to do things like that, and they. Must have never really wanted to work as accountants in the first place. Um, an accountant going and working um, in construction sites—I guess that would be—it uh, could happen, uh, but I think that's probably more the exception rather than the rule.
2: Mm. It's just—it's just an observation that I've, I've had, just in my time in in the industry. But to to I guess pick your brain on the whole immigration issue, I'm just going to bring up uh, some statistics to put everything in perspective. So this is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And it says Australia's population grew by 2.2% to 26.5 million people in the 12 months to the 31st, 31st of March this year, according to data released today by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So this was released in September this year. The ABS head of demography said 13 months after international borders reopened, net overseas migration accounted for 81% of growth and added 454,400 people to the population in the year to March 2023. Net overseas migration was driven by a large increase in arrivals, up 103% from last year to 681,000 and only a small increase in overseas migrant departures, up 8.8% to 226,600. This pattern, low departures in particular, is a catch-up effect after closed international borders as international students return with only a small number departing because very few arrived during the pandemic. This effect is expected to be temporary as the number of departures will increase in the future as temporary students start departing in usual numbers. Natural increase was 108,800 people, a decrease of 18.5% from last year. So people that are interested in uh, uh, excess deaths and birth rates, you might be interested in that figure. There were 301,200 births and 192,300 deaths registered during this time, with deaths increasing 7.9% and births decreasing 3.4%. COVID-19 mortality was still a contributor to uh, an in- increased number of deaths. Now, with all that in mind, uh, Ankar, do you think that Australia's migration levels, levels are adequate?
0: Um, as um, as it says in the media release, um, a lot of that uh, that effect is a catch-up effect uh, of, of COVID um, uh, and the pandemic. So what happened during that time was, of course, um, uh, the, um, the borders were closed. Uh, there was um, uh, massive restrictions on who could come in and who could not, and, and even Australian citizens and permanent residents were effectively denied access uh, to, to their own countries, which was which was really really sad. And I hope it's it's never ever repeated again in the future. But um, what it meant for immigration uh, was that for the first time since the end of the Second World War, we had negative net overseas migration um uh, during during that time and um and and now the, the the figures are are catching up and what's meant by net overseas migration because that always throws people and and people who are not uh, necessarily working uh, in this in this field might n- not know or have, have the wrong idea about what, what it means. So net overseas, you, you know, when you come into the country and you're given a, an arrival card, that arrival card asks, uh, there's a question on that card. It says, do you intend to live in Australia for the next 12 months? Yes or not? And um, so if you say yes to that question, uh, you're counted as, um, as, a, as a long-term arrival. Um, it doesn't matter what visa you have, because of course, uh, Australian citizens and permanent <coughs> residents are required to complete that arrival card as well as temporary visa holders. Um, so everyone completes the card. And whoever ticks yes to that question of uh, intending to live in Australia for the next 12 months uh, is counted as um, uh, as part of that net overseas uh, migration, uh, regardless of the visa they hold. So um, uh, that net overseas migration, uh, the bulk of it, and, and it's, it's probably going to be north of uh, 650,000 for this this year uh, which is which is huge but it's uh, it will come down again um, but a lot of it is um, uh, probably two-thirds of it and maybe more. Uh, will be uh, will be uh, international students uh, coming back in numbers after um, after universities and um, other um, types and uh, providers opened um, uh, opened themselves up to to applications once again. So that's there's a lot of that happening. Uh, but um, are the numbers are the numbers right? I, I would argue that um, uh, you know our our um, uh, permanent residents. Uh, Targets have been uh, pretty much at the same level for a long time. Uh, I know that during the last few years of um, uh, the um, uh, the coalition government, they um, they. Uh, changed the interpretation of the planning levels and started talking about uh, the planning levels as if as if they were a ceiling, as opposed to just a target, and and they were, um, you know, they, they were effectively using that as a ceiling and, and reducing the number of uh, people being granted permanent visas uh, for 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 the last couple of years or so of their um, of their nine year uh, government, uh, but. It, if you look at it uh, on a longer-term perspective, over a decade or uh, the last two decades, uh, they've been fairly consistent at uh, between um, 150 to uh, 190,000, and, and um, this government has retained them at uh, at the same level. I, I don't really see them putting them up any any more than that. Um, I think it is it is what you do with those numbers. Um, because those numbers, I think, they, they come from all sorts of places. But um, you've got you've got the productivity commission uh, preparing reports for the, the government. They look at the fertility replacement rate. They look at you know what number of um, what what population growth we have to have in order to sustain an aging population in order to have. People entering into the workforce and, and paying taxes so that we can have people uh, retiring uh, on pensions uh, in due course uh, and with an aging population that is more important than ever before. Um, so they look at things like that, um, and the Treasury provi- uh, prepares uh, what they call the intergenerational report. They look at, they take a more longer term perspective and they look at the next. Uh, 40 50 years and and what australia uh, may look like uh, some of it is obviously projection and, and may or may not come to pass but they look at things like uh, birth rates and um, and and migration levels and um, and 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 how to manage that so then they they come up with uh, with certain recommendations in those reports they, those reports come out every year so i think the question is not so much uh, are the levels adequate uh, it's it's more uh, it's more, I think. Um, what, how do we, how do we allocate those numbers, and how do we allocate those numbers uh, in a way that benefits Australia the most, uh, and and that actually addresses the needs that we have, as opposed to just ticking some box and saying, yeah, we delivered X number of visas this year.
1: Well, that's right. That's interesting too, because that's you know, if you you said before um, when you first were talking about it that you know we're competing in a in a pool for best countries of um, migrants to go to, okay? So I presume America would be one of those um, and things like that. So are we incentivising the right kind of people or do we have enough incentive for um, the right kind of um, immigrant to come to Australia that we need? Like we do need, I understand that um, we need skills filled instantly. So we know skill shortages, let's talk about like the accountants, okay? So skill shortages in accounting, so we need accountants, okay? So we can import bring uh, um, accountants over, Um, but how how are we targeting those people and are our infrastructures enough to keep um, large numbers? Like um, we had 400,000 people projected to come in or 450,000 people this year alone. Um, We have... um, Obviously, this going a little bit into political as well. So we have a million, roughly the last figure I heard was about a million houses shy of uh, to house the people of Australia um, that are here already. Um, you know, we're bringing over another four hundred thousand, estimated um, seven hundred and fifty thousand, or seven hundred and fifteen thousand in the next two within the next two years, including two thousand and twenty three. So by twenty twenty end of twenty twenty four, seven hundred and fifteen thousand. Um, you know. Is Australia capable to, to house uh,
0: that many people um, as we speak today? There is definitely a disconnect between um, our migration targets and um, and the way our housing policy is run. And, and, um, and at a time like this now, especially with that bounce-back effect we talked about just before uh, in the post-COVID era, um, we're seeing that um, our infrastructure is struggling to cope. And that's not surprising because, um, let's face it, even if we had zero migration or zero net overseas migration uh, and, and we had negative net overseas migration during COVID, re- let, let's not forget that. So even if we had zero, uh, forget negative, let's say we had zero, we still would have the housing issue that, that we're facing right now. So that's that wouldn't go away just because the numbers have dropped and, and we saw that it didn't go away during, uh, during covid um, when, when the borders were effectively closed, so um, and successive governments have have really not taken that up as a as a major issue facing um, facing our country, and uh, and I think that's that's where the gap has been. They have been consistent in maintaining the migration levels as as they have been for the last decade or two, um, and they have, you know. Uh, Reiterated why we have to keep doing things that way because of the shortages and the need to replace our aging workforce and and things like that and and everyone gets that to a point but um, but where they haven't where they have really dropped the ball is is um, is building um, sufficient infrastructure and not just um, you know but housing. Being the most important of of that, uh, to to ensure that um, everyone's got a roof their uh, roof on their uh, over their heads and, um, and and no one's struggling to um, uh, to to find housing.
2: Well, this is a this is something I really want to get into planning, because uh, we recently had Rod Roberts, who's a member of the New South Wales Upper House. He made a speech in the New South Wales Parliament where he said, "It's not a, it's not a issue of immigration. It's just a simple I- issue of migration. So it doesn't matter if you're bringing in." 100,000 people from China or 100,000 people from Queensland, you're still going to be facing the same issues. So there needs to be planning. And uh, one of the figures from this uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics article here that really surprised me, uh, it says the largest increase in total population was Victoria with 161,700 people, slightly more than New South Wales with 156,300 people. So that would suggest to me that a lot of people are flocking as they probably normally do, to Sydney and Melbourne are two biggest cities. But there seems to be no plan by government to decentralise our populations. And I want to get into that a little bit more with you later. But uh, do you think that uh, there's adequate planning for, for decentralising? Like, is there any incentive for immigrants to live outside of Sydney and Melbourne?
0: You would think... Look, I have a lot of colleagues who, who deal uh, or who themselves are based in um, in regional areas and deal a lot with uh, regional employers looking for um, people to, um, skilled people to, to work for them uh, and that they are prepared to sponsor towards um, uh, perhaps uh, initially for a temporary visa and maybe uh, eventually for a permanent visa. Um, so this idea that there's no life in the regions uh, I think is um, uh, is perhaps um, not uh, not all that accurate um, th- the question has always been how do you how do you attract people um, how do you incentivize people to to go to the regions where where those needs exist um, somebody was saying to me I've got as I said I have colleagues who who live uh, you know not not out in the in the middle of the desert we're talking about regional victoria um, maybe a couple of hours 3 4 hours outside melbourne and they are saying to me you, you know good luck if you have something break in your house and you need uh, uh, you need a, a plumber to come and have a look you, you might be waiting a couple of weeks before you could you could get anyone out i mean that's the mm-hmm. kind of so imagine imagine uh, many of those centers would how much they would benefit from People who are able to be self-employed in some of those trades, and particularly in trades, because that's where a lot of the shortages are in the regions uh, that we know. You know, you might not need a, a lot of sales and marketing manager or high-level corporate executives uh, in, in the regions, you know, not not ordinarily anyway. But um, but you're always going to need carpenters. You're always you're always going to need construction project managers. You're always going to need um, even nurses, um, you know, and, and teachers. Um, you're going to need plumbers and electricians, those people who, who, who we rely on to keep the place going. Uh, and and there's, you know, the previous government back in 2019, they introduced a couple of regional visas, uh, a new, new regional visa, subclasses 491 and 494. And especially the 494 was meant to be, um, it was presented at the time as something of a of a silver bullet to to fix this issue of attracting people to the regions, and um, so this happened in uh, November 19, and of course COVID uh, came along only a few months after, uh, and and that th- that whole visa collapsed. Uh, you know there were there were because it was meant to be a provisional visa, the government basically sat on those applications uh, from from overseas, and there was very little demand from onshore and from offshore. Uh, they were sitting on those applications. Some of them, some of them took more than two, 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 two and a half years to be processed. Uh, and the idea was, when when it was introduced, uh, they said they were going to give it top priority. It was going to be the <laughs> the number one priority visa, uh, the quickest to be processed. And, and nothing like that happened, of course. And um, and the visa. Probably died as you know, a very slow death. Um, at the moment, there's still no take up, and um, and 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 with with some changes that the government has mooted, uh, might be coming up later this year. Um, that they might just be um, getting ready to to bury that visa forever. Uh, so mm-hmm. what what that means is they need to come up with a new strategy to to incentivize people to to go, to go to the regions. Um, uh, because those, you know, what they need to do is, I think they need to work closer with uh, state governments and and the agencies that approve sponsorships for gov- state governments to sponsor people into those regional areas. Um, they um, uh, many of them are uh, on the ground themselves and they know quite well what what those what those uh, different regions within their states and territories need in terms of in terms of skills, uh, and um, uh, they need to be given the the tools to. To really get the right people into um, into areas where their skills are going to be needed, because let's face it, say if you're a plumber and you know that you can go to uh, a regional town where you could um, uh, where you could establish yourself and start earning a uh, very good income from day one, why wouldn't you do it? Um, mm, right, right. And, uh, and the same for, for any, for any trade or, or any other occupation where, you know, your skills are in demand. Why would you compete with many others, uh, in a, in a, in an already crowded area when you could have your pick of the, um, uh, of the lot, um, in, a in a region, uh, where you could probably live in a nicer uh, house and, um, And 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 start hit you know hit the ground running from day one. Why wouldn't you do it? Um, And that's that's what needs to be incentivized. So I don't know if the government is going to come up with a a renewed strategy for the regions. We'll have to wait and see.
1: Well, Well, sorry, guys, Stephen. There's there's a big idea
2: out there. It's called the Big Australia, and I think it was Kevin Rudd was saying that we need to increase our population to fifty million people now. I work in construction. The whole purpose of in construction is either you're increasing the uh, effectiveness of a, of a piece of infrastructure, or you're increasing its capacity. So when I hear 50 million people for Australia, I say, okay, but what's the plan for it? We could get there, but let, let's plan for it. What are the what are the planning stages that we need to implement to to be able to increase our population to that extent? And I know there's a lot of people out there that disagree with that. I mean, my first. Uh, foray into politics i went to a meeting in in my local area here and one guy that i was speaking to was uh he brought up that the the happiest countries in the world have have populations of 14 million people and he listed a whole bunch of small european countries and i turned around to him and i said you do realize australia is a big place right and he didn't really have an answer for me but he called me later in the week and he said we you know, if we really want to be happy and successful here in Australia, we need to reduce our population to 18 million. And I was like, uh, we've, we've got a population of about 25 million now. How are we going to get rid of 7 million people? And look, he made some horrible joke about the, sending people to the Russian war. And I'm like, okay, I cut that guy out. <laughs> I didn't want any more to do with him. But uh, I, for, for me, if we're going to plan to increase our population, There's four main areas that we need to look at, and one is housing, as we've mentioned, because the housing affordability at the moment is way off the chart and people are really struggling. The other issue is you're talking about people living in rural communities. Well, we need to start looking at big nation-building projects like a high-speed rail. And I've heard that people could live in places like Goulburn and catch a high-speed rail to Sydney in say twenty five minutes. Now that would completely revolutionise Australia. I mean people could now buy a home or or you know, and maybe an apartment in Goulburn and easily live uh, work in Sydney, and that would solve a, a lot of issues there. The other issue is water, we need to we need to drought proof a lot of Australia, so it's more habitable for for us to build uh little towns and cities there and the last one's energy we need to have energy security here and that's a huge another element but anka i'm gonna i'm gonna give you the opportunity now if you were to be on a parliamentary committee to advise the government on this issue how do we plan to increase australia's population i want to ask you a couple of questions firstly is the 50 million population figure achievable Second one is is there a time frame that we could achieve that within and the last question is how would you strategize the planning for to be able to achieve that
0: is it achievable uh, you w- you would have to look at the the time frame uh, that you're putting on it to to see if it's achievable i don't think it's achievable in the short term but um, are we going in that direction of uh, you know of a bigger australia of, of 50 million people yes eventually yes we are we will um, have to go in that direction but we're talking maybe in the next 40 to 50 years we're not talking we're not talking in the next decade or so we've never had a, a population increase of, of of that sort in such a short period of time so it it will, it will take a, a long time. Uh, but um, I, I think in the meantime, um, yes, what you said um, about um, those key priority areas. Um, see, you can, you can make changes to the migration program. As I said, in terms of the program, in terms of the numbers in the program, they've been pretty much very cons- consistent over the last uh, couple of decades anyway. Uh, and, and it doesn't look like this government... Um, it intends to um, intends to change those numbers significantly uh, so it really is uh, a question of what you do and how you allocate those numbers and what you do with them uh, that that's um, that's really the key and then and then the other thing the other uh, issues that you've highlighted uh, so construction uh, and water and energy and transportation those things then come into play and and what we need is really a uh, a discussion that is a more holistic discussion that takes into consideration those challenges and and links them to not necessarily to migration as such, but to to population growth and and how those challenges are to be met going forward. Um, and um, uh, you know, until uh, until now, governments have uh, really had a, a more of a short term focus on um, putting a band aid here, a band aid there, and and hoping that uh, that'll pull the wool over people's eyes and, and make them, you know, make it look like they're, they're doing something about it, but really lacking that uh, longer-term focus and dedication and and planning to, to address them um, in the long term.
1: Well, do you think um, it might be better or um, part of the plan? I understand that we need to get, you can't just grow or you just can't get um, specific skills from kids coming straight out of school um you know trade courses are 3 to 4 years and you know all that kind of stuff and then you have to have on the ground experience a, a tradesman just like I'm a tradesman you know you don't have you don't get your full skill set until after a couple of years of graduating or becoming a tradesman anyway so you're still green around the gills and then what happens is after you get into the field and deal with all the issues you build up your tool bag um and all your fixes and stuff like that and then you become a pretty good tradesman if you care about your job okay but do you think that um, so i understand that we do need an immigration policy to bring in the shortage of skills for now but part of this what ties into your the planning idea and stuff that you're saying is what about the australian kids mm-hmm. what about the australian kids coming out of school why aren't we incentivizing not everyone's a, not everyone's an accountant not everyone's a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer okay why are, why is the government not really incentivizing our youth the kids that don't want to be in school that want to leave in year 10 that want to just get out get into trade i mean you can have trade you can have a you can, okay you go to you can leave school in year 10 like this would happen to me i left school in year 10 i was a tradesman earning a tradesman's wage by the time i was 19 you know, and working and, and being really useful to the society. Well, I hope I was useful to the society as far as, you know, with, with the trade that I was doing, okay? So, you know, people wanted signs, I could make signs, I could help promote businesses, all that kind of stuff, transferred my skills to other things in the construction industry as well now, okay? Um, so don't you think that, uh, or do you think that, you know, incentivizing Australian students and giving them all the opportunities um, that Australia has to offer should be a priority Um Aside from filling the skill gap now, so we really need a skill... Like, let's say all the kids that go out of school now, you know, 20% of them want to leave in year 10. That's a 20% of the kids graduating or schools to, to go into trade and become good. It takes four years. So we need to cover the skills gap for four years, five, maybe six years, um, and then move on to educating our students and our children and incentivizing people to have maybe more children,
0: not less. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's all part of the whole. It's all part of the package of um, having a longer term focus. And um, and as you've as you've rightly said, um, if you look at some of those trades, it takes three four years to to get to a point where you have a piece of paper to say that you're qualified. And then it takes maybe a couple more years on top of that before you you're actually fully proficient and able to do the job. And uh, and um, the same is true for. Um, uh for professional roles um i know that for example you know there's there's a shortage of nurses we all know that there's a shortage of nurses and and it's not just in australia it's it's worldwide and everyone's competing for the same pool of nurses um in i think in victoria the, the government um made um uh put in a system put in a um an incentive whereby you could um uh, get uh, a refund on the on the on the fees that you paid if you if you did uh, a nursing qualification, um, as long as you undertook to work for uh, in the public service for x number of years after completing your uh, your qualifications. The take up wasn't wasn't huge, and also remember that the industry lost a lot of nurses uh, during COVID, okay. um, not just because of. Uh, burnout but also because of the mandates that they pushed uh, later uh on on onto those professionals so uh very sad that at a time when uh when we were struggling to uh to attract nurses from elsewhere we were losing our own ones we asked uh, so the to- <laughs> to, to, to 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 either other other countries or to other industries. Either way, it's a, it's a terrible state of affairs. But yeah, it takes a long time, and and that's um, to 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 educate people and to to get them in uh, incentives incentives for uh, tradies, incentives for certain key uh, uh, qualifications or or. Um, uh, professions that require uh, professional degrees uh, definitely has to be part of the the longer term planning, uh, and we need to get to a point where um, we rely uh, we rely on those systems uh, that are in place and that are well uh, oiled and functioning properly to deliver us those skills over a longer period of time, and to to ensure that they remain um affordable or uh, you know or, or attractive enough that that kids would take them on and um, uh, and when they come out of it at the end that they uh, hopefully stay in those fields and um, and and do um and work in those in those areas that that we need them to work in uh, so those gaps can be filled uh, into the future yeah
2: uh, my wife is German, so she immigrated to Australia, and now she's uh, permanent resident, and obviously married to me, and you know, <laughs> having kids and everything. But uh, she she speaks of when she did the English test, it was very difficult, and I know a lot of her friends are in the same boat. They're they're finding it very difficult just to pass the English test, and I, I find with a lot of uh, people that immigrate to Australia or in the process of trying to. Uh, attain a visa they get incredibly frustrated with the process and there's a little bit of contempt that's inbred uh, because of that process uh, do you find that with the people that you deal with and if it is such a hard process do you think that it's, there's any solutions to to make it better
0: um when it comes to the english test um i, I don't think it's uh, it's a bad thing to have uh, an english test um it's uh it's one of those basic requirements, um, and and uh, really uh, the higher levels of um, uh, competency that's required to get points is is mostly for um, uh, visas that operate on a points based system, um, because if you're being sponsored by an employer, the, the entry level for English is actually pretty low. It's uh, You only have to have what they call competent English, and that's not that's not a very high level. And if you haven't even got that level, you probably have no business being here in the first place. We, we, um, we, would, we would fail, Adam, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> with the, with the a basic, basic competency on English. <laughs> uh,
0: look, I, I I deal a lot with, uh, with native speakers, and just because a person is a native speaker, that is, is no guarantee that they'll get those uh, those really high marks in in, in English testing because they uh, the, the test I guess um, uh, the test uh, test certain for certain competencies and uh, and um, uh, people who don't necessarily use um, uh, you know the written word in uh, in their daily lives uh, don't don't always have those skills um, or not to the same not to the same level uh, but I, I think the uh, the English test uh uh the frustration with the english test a lot of it comes from not so much uh the level that uh, that that they're asking you to attain but um but the way the test has been deployed in the past uh, and a lot of my um a lot of my colleagues in the in the profession have brought this up in the past and, and rightly so um and and there hasn't been much progress with it from the government side Um, The way these tests are structured, um, they've got got different components, uh, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And then there's an overall score that you get, which is most of the time an average of the the other four components. And and the way the the points test is structured and the way um, the basic requirements for even employer-sponsored visas um, work is that you must get a a specific score in each of the four components. um, And your overall score isn't even looked at. For the majority of visas, there are some where, where they do look at them, but for the majority of the visas, the overall score isn't isn't looked at. But because in order to have a holistic approach to uh, to, to language competency, that the overall score should and does mean something, and if that was taken into consideration, I think uh, that would uh, take away some of that, um, some of that frustration. Because uh, especially when um, the English testing was a monopoly under the IELTS, um, you know, IELTS was the only test that was accepted for many years um, up until uh, six or seven years ago, uh, and um, uh, and a lot of people had this feeling that it was a money making scheme that people were. Uh, <laughs> almost on purpose being failed one or the other components just so they could come back and pay again and be tested again and you know then you fail some other component you come back again the opening up of the of the english language testing uh, field to to other competitors like pt academic and toefl and um, uh, and uh, cambridge english advanced uh Got rid of some of those concerns because IELTS lost its uh, its primacy and its uh, its monopoly over the market, Uh, but some of those concerns relating to uh, having to get a certain um, score uh, in each of the four bands still remains. I think that's the frustration that you've heard uh, from uh, from your wife and possibly her friends who have gone through the system, Uh, but that's easily fixed, uh, you know, and and that. That easy fix doesn't actually break the system, so you know that, that's just um, that's just something that the government could fix tomorrow if they wanted to. But for some reason, there's been a bit of um, a bit of reluctance. Who knows why?
1: I think um, I think people on the ground are a bit worried about the whole migration numbers and things like that. Because let's say we're so in need of nurses. My wife's a nurse, and I, I get I get I've seen both sides of the story there. And my wife's also migrated to Australia as well because my wife's actually South African, so which is also a very high demographic of migrants into Australia. I think I saw a stat researching this was about seventy-five percent of migrants come to Australia are South African anyway, or something like added out, out of the group or something like that. It was a crazy number, um, but um, anyway, like my concern, and I think, and I've spoken to a lot of people about this, you know, through the political careers and stuff like that, you know. So we're so desperate for a nurse. So we'll bring a nurse over, okay, and we incentivize them to come. So we give them, you know, the government, well, the taxpayer supports them via, you know, rental assistance. They get priority over, um, you know, for um, when they have to do their practical tests and they get they get to choose the hospital that they want to go to. And it kind of disadvantages Australian students or citizen students, um, you know, where they have to then maybe go to further away hospitals to do their practical testing and stuff like that, okay? But a big concern is, is that... Um, you know, uh, we'll we'll bring over a South African nurse, um, and she has two kids. So then we bring the, the two kids. Obviously, have to come over, and then the husband will come over, and then maybe a parent, a, a grandparent, might come over with them. So to get one nurse, we've got to bring four or five people over. That not, might not necessarily contribute to um, our economy as we would hope, because you would have one nurse who is working as a nurse, finally fills the gap, gets her one-year, does her one-year bridge course so she can actually practise in Australia, and then what happens is, um, you know, that we've got basically four other people that we're supporting or that could potentially um, go on to, like, the benefits. Um, is, that, is that an issue or are you seeing any sort of issues like that with our immigration, um, the way we're trying to attract and um, bring people over to benefit Australia?
0: Uh, not so much with skilled migrants. Um, typically, skilled migrants tend to have skilled partners, or uh, or at the very least, um, partners who are um, highly employable. Uh, so even if they might not necessarily be in a in a uh, skilled uh, occupation, um, they uh, have experience that allows them to to get employed fairly easily in Australia. And uh, and when it comes to I mean kids are of course you know they're, they're the future anyway so you bring them in and they, and eventually <laughs> they become good little Aussies and they become uh, they become professionals or tradies or or something themselves going forward and they they replace that aging population so that's something that we need anyway as for as for grandparents uh, well the, the, the migration of grandparents uh, is, is severely restricted into into Australia anyway uh, so um, the uh, the processing times for parents of Australian citizens and uh, permanent residents to to come into Australia are, are at the moment you're looking at you know seven or eight years just to, even if you're prepared to pay the the contributory uh, the the contribution uh, fee uh, that uh, that you have to pay per adult. Um, and even those ones are taking about eight years and the ones that where you're not paying that contribution fee, uh, it's uh it's it's more like 30 years so you know it's it's not easy at all and and you certainly cannot bring them as part of your family unit that that door was shut uh, many years ago uh, back in 2015 they uh, they closed that door and um, and you, you were only able to do that with a widowed parent anyway uh, and and they basically made that impossible to starting from 2015 so um, so that's gone but yeah it's um what I see in my practice and I think that um, many of my uh, colleagues would um, Uh, would agree as well. Generally speaking, skilled people tend to have skilled partners or at least um, uh, or at the very least partners who are um, uh, working in fields where they, they, they are easily employable in Australia. And plus, let's remember that in the points test, if you have a skilled partner who's somebody who's uh, able to get a skills assessment of their own in a in a skilled occupation that actually attracts uh, gives you points and those points were increased some years ago to to make it um, easier for people with skilled mar- uh, skilled parent, uh, partners to um, to come in under that system. Uh, so that's worked more or less quite well. But even without that, as I said, uh, generally speaking, um, you know, couples tend to tend to sort of come as a unit and they they both end up being employed um, gainfully in Australia.
1: Oh, that's, well, that's I, good to I, hear. I, at least, anyway. So, people who are worried about that can just rest assured a little bit that we've got some numbers and statistics here that are that are that are positive for Australia, which is a good thing. Because I mean, Australians are just worried. I think you know they're worried about what, where they're you know bringing people over and then having children, their children. How are their children going to get jobs and and, yeah. and 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 things like that? You know, so I, I'm glad that anyway. That's kind of eased my mind a little bit as well.
0: No, that, um, as I said, you know, we do need those kids to, uh, to replace our ageing population anyway. So, uh, you know, it's good. And also, interestingly enough, um, uh, statistics show that um, migrants uh, tend to have uh, a lower fertility rate compared to the general population. So that's quite mm-hmm. interesting, actually. You know, a lot of people, I think, uh, particularly, you know, people who are anti-immigration <laughs> might actually think that it's the opposite—that uh, that you know you're suddenly going to have all these people coming in and having kids in Australia and uh, and so on and so forth. But actually, the opposite is true. Um, statistics show that um, that migrants and, and there could be all sorts of reasons for that. You know, people delay having kids because of you know making those big decisions to to make a move and and of course you know when you when you change countries, um, you you spent a lot of your savings on uh, on the move itself and and possibly you find yourself in a situation where you can't necessarily afford another child. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if you had stayed back where you were, maybe you could have. And, and so there could be all sorts of reasons for it. And I don't pretend to know the full no. uh, reasoning for it, but that's what the, uh, that's what uh, figures show anyway. So, um, so yeah, any, anyone who's coming in and um, uh, especially, and and the younger the kids, the better, of course, because the younger, um, you know, again, uh, w- we have um, uh, evidence that shows that uh the earlier um, kids coming into Australia get into the school system and uh, and do um, you know from middle school onwards, uh, the more likely they are to to be successful going forward uh, and integrating as well as um, as well as getting um, an education that will allow them to to function on their own in Australia.
2: Well, I've just put the uh, link in the in the chat. If anyone wants to call in and ask Uncle a question, uh, Tony's even. Put a comment in here saying that she's listening to us from the bath, which
1: is interesting. <laughs> so people, people are listening to us from everywhere. But uh, as long Adam, as she's got a glass of champagne while she's in the bath, then that's
2: okay. I think, judging by some of her comments, maybe she does. But uh Anka, um, Adam raised uh you know what some australian people are worried about when it comes to immigration i think another issue is assimilation and uh yeah. some areas especially in sydney you'll get a congregation of certain uh, cultures and certain races together uh and i think it's quite evident that over time assimilation does happen and uh, you know countries that have immigrated here maybe earlier around the second world war they've already integrated Fine, and they're they're part of Australian culture. Whereas people, countries that are immigrating now are having maybe some issues. What do you think the government can do to uh, assist this assimilation process, where you don't get such a congregation of different cultures?
0: Um, I think it's a, it's a question of um, uh, spreading out the population, so that um, you know you've got incentives to um, <laughs> you've got incentives to. Um, <laughs> To settle in different different parts of, of the country, and that's I think that's where if we go back to that conversation that we had about the, the regional migration policy, um, that that's where that's uh, sort of focus of attracting people to to different parts of the country would uh, would come in would come in handy. I think compared to many other countries, uh, particularly in Europe, um, uh, who have um, those sorts of issues with. Um, uh, People from uh, certain areas congregating in um, uh, in certain uh, neighborhoods, and you know, forming what you could call ghettos and and things like that. We we haven't really had that so much in in Australia. Yes, there are in in Sydney and Melbourne. I guess there are certain suburbs that have maybe a concentration of. Uh, certain groups more than others, and, and things like that, but uh, but not 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 to the exclusion of everyone else. It, there's there's really no suburb that I can think of that is you know primarily one one particular group. Uh, you you could have more visibility of certain groups, but that's that's about it. So we haven't we haven't done too badly on that front, but but I think it's um, uh, it really needs to be part of uh, an overall. Uh, population strategy anyway to to spread that uh, you know if we're going to be a bigger country we can't just be a bigger country by by being a you know uh, by making Melbourne and Sydney and Perth and brisbane bigger we need to we need to spread that out and and yes. have new centers of uh, of gravity and new centers or you know where where people will be attracted to and and um, and, and grow those areas um uh, going forward
1: well I can I can tell you that there's definitely a disconnect in that particular stance of planning because um, the state, New South Wales state government is pushing all the local councils um, to densify the city city areas that they have with with apartment buildings and things like that. So they're not actually... It's really hard and what what I've been seeing is you know there's all all this hoo ha about and, and and right in some in some cases rightly so whatever with green um, policy and animals and and native species and stuff like that i'm not saying just i'm not saying kill them all and just build houses out out in the bush and stuff like that but you know there the australia's the, si- the landmass of australia is the size of america roughly and america has 330 million people we've only got 26.5 million people so we've got room we've got all the room we need to um, actually open up Australia and and expand our cities and 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 actually grow our cities out to regional areas. You talked about um, drought mitigation and things like that. Well, if you slowly start expanding cities outward, you know you get plumbing, you start getting water, you start doing this. You don't have to build such big infrastructure because you can just um, maybe bulk up or intensify the infrastructure that we have. But um, there's a disconnect with with sending people and intensifying people out into rural areas really because all they're trying to do is is densify our our small cities and there was a comment before about 15 minute cities and and all that kind of stuff and we've already had a taste of lockdowns with covid and things mm. like that um you know so a lot of people are weary about you know these 15 minute cities and 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 and, and densification and really what we really do need is um expansification if i can coin that term
0: decentralization
1: decentralization there
0: you go (laughs) i i I fully um um sympathize with some of those concerns um and they're, they're quite valid concerns but i can't see why they can't go um the two things cannot go hand in hand because um if you've got um if you've got um Urban areas that are struggling to cope with transportation demands. One of the things that um, that you know you could you could do is um, is create a situation where fewer people have to move around, so that um, uh, so that the transport systems are able to cope until such time as they are um, uh, they're brought. Uh, up to speed and and um, and into you know where the capacity is increased to deal with uh, with that increase in the in the population and one way of doing that is uh, and this is what they've done in uh, in many countries in Asia for instance is uh, along transport uh, routes um, and around especially around train stations uh, having that um, higher density uh, sort of living uh, closer to those transport hubs so that people don't necessarily have to move big distances to get to where they need to get to mm-hmm. so uh, you know i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but if 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 that's the only strategy that you have and you, you haven't got that longer term perspective to uh, to to build into the uh, into the regions and to build up the regions so that they become centres of attraction in their own right. Uh, well, then, then you're failing because um, that that uh, just focusing on uh, addressing the existing problems uh, within the within the big cities themselves isn't going to help you um, uh, in the in the long term.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely
1: you me, agree.
2: You had me scared for a moment there.
1: <laughs> no, but I completely. Agree.
2: I, can I, thought, I thought he was promoting fifteen minute cities, but then he, then he no, clarified. No no no, no,
1: no, 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 I've seen some. Of, I've seen some of his other interviews, and I've seen some of Uncle. I've seen some of the other interviews and stuff like that. I know you're not for that. But what I was going to yeah. say is, but my my concern, I guess, when in talking about that, is okay, fine. You know, let us let's, let's put, you know, out in my area is um, it used to be rural. I guess it's kind kind of developed into a small city now. Um, it was. I think it was one of the. It was the biggest satellite Sydney of Sydney for a while, and I think I don't know if it's changed now. If Bankstown's got that or something like that. But um, all right, so this, the government's gonna, you know, put six foot, uh, six story sky rises, eight story sky rises into our semi-rural community. Densify cities, city areas, uh, the city areas around the train tracks and stuff like that. My question is, they can't even build, they can't even put disabled lifts or lifts and Macquarie Fields train station, how are they going to invest in infrastructure to make sure that we don't have to, we're only not relying on densification? The, I, there's no trust in the government. I, I don't trust, I guess I don't trust, and a lot of my supporters and followers don't trust what they're trying to do because it is what you were saying. It's a short-term fix. It's like it's a Band-Aid fix. Let's just pump up the cities. Let's pump up next to the train stations, and um, there's nowhere for cars. There's nowhere for for really anything. Okay, but you know what, you can st- work, work from home or you can jump on the train, five-minute walk to the train station and go to the city if you need to, right? But they won't even put a li- They won't even put lifts in at a, at a Macquarie Fields train station, which is the only lift in our area, uh, sorry, train station in our area that doesn't even have disabled lifts. So it's very mm-hmm. hard to think that the government are going to plan far enough ahead to build more infrastructure to, to, to mitigate that 15-minute city issue.
0: No, I, um, I, I I share those same concerns. I mean, we need to see we need to see better governance for sure, yeah. and not just not just at the federal level, but at the at the state level and the local level as well. And that's um, you know we really um, we we haven't been well served by by the choices that um, that are out there uh, for for some time
1: now. Absolutely, Oops. and sorry, Stephen. One more thing, and this is this is why he loves it when I'm sick or not able to do it because I don't talk. But I'm going to talk over you oh, today because so, I missed one. so good. Yes, it was so good yesterday. <laughs> but, um, but now, see, just talking about that, I, I miss my. I miss my. Oh, that's right. So what happens is, you know, local councils are held to ransom by state government. So if and I I just found this out. So I thought, you know, I understand that your state your state kind of runs council and that's the you know that the baby brother of 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 state politics but um if a council re- rebuts or refuses to do what state government wants to implement they get their funding cut so they're hamstrung anyway so they don't even have like that's the count local council is the ground roots of of getting from the from a local taxpayer ratepayer to a political group that can get it further up the line to state and then federal okay and um, what happens is if they say, hey, we don't want to build, uh, we don't want to approve six- or seven-storey or eight-storey buildings in our city, well, then they'll get marked against, and they have a black mark against them and then they'll get um, no funding for however many years until the punishment is served the crime. I mean, that's pretty bad. Go- I think that's bad and poor governments because they're not listening to the people anyway.
0: That's right. And then you've got... Um... Then you've got some councils um, doing anything but uh, council business, uh, trying to promote this cause or that cause, and and engaging in uh, in areas that they haven't been elected to, um, to to work on. So you know you've got to wonder what what some of these people are thinking. You know if the, if if they uh, they thought uh, that those are the causes that they're going to stand up for, maybe maybe they should have they should have gone to. Uh, to to state government or or federal government as opposed to local. So, you know, who knows what they were thinking. Yep.
2: Well, speaking of governments, you're not only an immigration specialist, but you're also a political commentator. And you were speaking widely about the recent voice referendum. Now, we all know the result now. And uh, it's been discussed the reasons why the no case won and why the yes case lost. But what, what do you see going forward? Where do you think the government's going to uh, go after this? I know Tony put a comment in the, in the chat very early on. Um, I haven't been able to see the article, but she said that the misinformation bill has been de- delayed for now. So that's good news. We need to find out more information about that. But where do you see the whole political landscape going at the moment, especially with Albanese's government, maybe even Albanese's leadership himself?
0: um i mean the um the misinformation um debate that seemed to um that seemed to start around the time of uh, the referendum and continued on afterwards um was i think um a bit of a uh, uh it was a bit of a misnomer in that uh you know some people were so keen to to come up with reasons, uh, particularly in the S yes camp, to come up with reasons why uh, why they may not necessarily have got the result that they were looking for, uh, that they were um, that they were latching on to uh, supposed misinformation by this or that group as as being the primary cause of um, the outcome. But uh, but actually, if if those surveys um, that were floating around uh, earlier this year and um, Late last year were correct. Um, then, um, then the yes campaign started off um, in a stronger position and, and gradually lost the support that they supposedly had. Um, so they must have done something wrong. I don't think I don't think it's necessarily the other side that uh, that put forward a, be, a better argument as such, because it was always for the yes to lose as opposed to the. Uh, the other way, uh, and and it just um, it just seems to be that they weren't able to uh, convince a sufficient number of Australians uh, of the need to not necessarily the need to 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 put in place a um, uh, a body like the Voice, but uh, the need I think to. Um, to uh, instate it or to enshrine it in the constitution from day one. I think that's where the the argument came unstuck, uh, and and I've written about this uh, extensively. Uh, that um, there seem it's almost like there was no trust in that in the uh, in the body that was being proposed in the first place. Uh, there was a reluctance to look. Uh, let's put it in place and see how it goes. No, no, we can't do that because. Because that's not what the Aboriginal people have asked for, so it became a bit of a circular argument. Uh, we can't put it in place because the Aboriginal people have asked us, you know, to to put it into the constitution, and we can't put it, We need to put it into the constitution because that's what the Aboriginal people asked us to do, and so it became a bit of a circular argument that just didn't win um, any new supporters. Um, and and in fact, um, the uh, the figures seem to suggest that people who were uh, on the fence. Um, uh, from the start or towards the um, towards the middle of the campaign, were more likely to cross over into the no side than than otherwise. Uh, so what they what they did was they um, ended up consolidating perhaps the people who were always going to vote yes uh, for different reasons, and some did out out of uh, conviction, and some did out of a sense of. Loyalty to to their tribe or to their people and and things like that, but um, they failed at convincing people who were having second thoughts or who weren't um, uh, who weren't convinced by the arguments uh, that were out there. Um, as for what the government is going to do going forward, well, if they are serious about wanting to close the gap and if they're serious about wanting to do um, something for um, uh, the aboriginal and torres strait islander australians that will make uh, their lot better um, they've got to um they've got to show us what that plan is because i think uh what we were seeing throughout the campaign was that the government had all of their eggs in the one basket and that basket was called the voice and um, and it was going to be the silver bullet um uh, and and uh, you know once it was in place everything was going to be good and they could turn around and say we did this you know we put this in place and and look you know and and they were going to effectively Buy themselves a few years, um, uh, you know. By the time they were, they did the consultations to uh, to figure out the composition of the voice, and it was in, finally put in place. And for it to run for a year or two before we know, uh, you know, if it's working or not. So they were going to effectively buy themselves uh, two or three years uh, to to say, look, you know, just just give us some time. We're doing something about it. Now they haven't got that, so, so there's more of an immediacy to um to 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 have to for them to have to do something to show that they were serious all along about wanting to make things better and um and and really close the gap uh, and unfortunately they have put themselves in a situation where legislating for the voice now is not really politically feasible or doable and and that's really really sad because that's an opportunity i think that could have been um uh, that could have been um Captured uh, very early on in the piece, and I've ne- I never understood why they would say something like, "Oh, but you know, if we don't put it into the constitution, the next government will come and just you know get rid of it, or some other evil people will come and and, and take it away from us and things like that." I mean, you're a government. Uh, the, when this when this debate first started, uh, the, the government had only been in place for six months. You know, you're elected for a minimum of three years. With any kind of luck, it'll be a- another. Another term as well. So that's six years. So you've got you've got maybe two and a half years at, at the, as a bare minimum, but more likely to be five and a half years to go. And you're you're thinking that somebody else will come and steal it from you. Well, you had all the time in the world to legislate. Then let it run um, for the people to see that it's working, it's delivering as as, um, as projected, and making a real difference, a positive difference. And then possibly, if it is part of your platform, which it was. If it's part of your platform, then go to the Australian people to ask them to enshrine it in the Constitution down the track, and it could have even um, it could have even been combined with the next uh, federal election, thereby cutting that cost of 300 million dollars just to run the referendum. I mean, quite a lot. A lot of that is common sense, but it seems common sense is not that common at all.
1: <laughs> There's no common sense in politics. I've been told that many times by many different mm. people. Um, yeah, that that was crazy. Uh, I forgot what I was gonna. I was gonna ask something, and now I've forgotten what I was. That's
2: right. Say I just want to uh, ask Tony. Uh, you sent this article about uh, the misinformation uh, bill. Uh, I can't find that anywhere. I've had. A, I've just had a quick look. If you can send me the article in my in my Facebook, just so we can have some evidence that what you said was correct, because I can't find any evidence that the misinformation bill has been delayed. I hope it has, because a lot of people have been concerned about that. But I better just make that clarification if you can show me some evidence it would be good i can't open it up here but um yeah Um, it
1: it came back to me so i've got the question so that uh, labor sorry were um obviously four years in in, i can't remember now the numbers exactly but they were in they were in opposition for a long time if this was going to be their made if this if this was going to be their golden ticket to glory and and all that kind of stuff wouldn't they not have had a plan or a le- or some sort of structure of what the voice was going to be anyway. Don't you think that, you know, they could have, as you said, with with the whole legislating it in, they should mm-hmm. have had, like I agree with, with your sentiment there about having it legislated in, getting it to run and work for a couple of years, work out some of the kinks and, and you know, and show the people of Australia and show the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that this is going to make a difference and this isn't going to be like all the other bogus schemes that didn't work and made certain individuals rich and have pilots for, you know, 24-7 on hand and, and boats in farms out in the middle of whoop whoop. Um, you know, so, you know, don't you think um why did not if Labor was going to use this as their as their master stroke, why didn't they have anything anything sort of drafted or written up and 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 set up how it would work? This I think this is the biggest failure. Of the referendum as well is that they just had no idea what what the hell was going on. Not to mention had communists um, really pushing the agenda as well. When and you know you
0: walk away from those guys. Oh, there was a mixed bag on both sides, I think. Um, and and um, and those sorts of uh, the more extreme uh, sort of um, uh, views, I don't think helped helped either side. But but uh, but but really, the the loss was um, uh, you know the. The yes campaign is doing so. It's not. It's not that the no campaign won anything as such. The lost, yes campaign lost whatever goodwill they 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 initially had to begin with. Um, and as for as for having a plan, well, yeah. Um, well, either they either they never had a plan, or they were or they were not sharing it with us, or they were relying on the blueprint that was put out in the Karma Langton report to to form the basis of um, because the the that Karma Langton report. Uh, foresaw a national voice as well as as well as local and regional voices. So when when people were being asked to vote on a, a voice, they weren't just voting on a single voice. Um, we, the, it was the national voice that was going to be in the constitution had the had the referendum passed. But um, we would as a, then as a bonus, we would be getting uh, in the Carmel Langton report. It said thirty five local and regional voices to go along with that. That they would be advising. Um, you know, they would be uh, providing advice uh, at that level, then up to the local and then finally up to the national voice. Um, wasn't all that clear how that coordination was going to work and how that uh, potential conflicts would be ironed out and things like that. And that's precisely why um, for the Australian people to see how it would work first before being asked to to go to that uh, quite definitive uh, sort of um, stage of putting it into the constitution and, and knowing how difficult it is to change our constitution, to make any sort of change to our constitution uh, for uh, for a country like us where where it is so hard to make that change, yeah. to be asked to to do that first, uh, it's it's like putting the cart before the horse. And uh, and I think that that ultimately just didn't convince people.
1: No, I definitely agree with you. I 100 agree. I think Stephen's got the link now.
2: It's a Telegram link, so I can't open up Telegram links on my uh, computer. I haven't got that set up, Tony, so uh, unfortunately. But she's got a link to Joel Jamal, so if you want to check out Joel Jamal's Telegram link, he might have something on there in relation to the misinformation bill. But uh, with, uh, we've seen, we've seen the, uh, the polls come out and say that uh, Labor has slipped in the polls now. Do you think Albanese will see a, a leadership challenge in the next few <laughs> weeks and
0: months? Uh, well, I think it's it's more difficult now uh, for for that leadership leadership change to happen. So it's not like the the Rudd Gillard years where um, where you could just stage a, a push in the in the party room to to get rid of a leader. So it's it's a bit more complicated than that now to 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 change leadership. Uh, but look, uh, I think that ultimately comes down to, um, and that's true for any leader. If it gets to a, a stage where the party elders and the party, sort of broadly speaking, uh, the party machination decides that uh, the leader is um, more of a liability than an asset. Then that's that's when uh, well, then that's that's when that push happens. So you know you don't even need the the, the push for that. Um, so I, I don't think we're we're anywhere near that yet. Um, yes, there's been a, a bit of a uh, I think with uh, particularly with the uh, cost of living challenges that uh, many Australians are facing. There's been a a little bit of a turn away from. Um, uh from government but um, you know we're still we're still uh, two years out from elections so it's a long long time to go before before this uh, starts sort of worrying people in terms of you know within the party and um, uh, so I think early on I don't expect any any challenge uh, anytime soon but uh, if things start slipping and going badly in the polls and uh, and in the overall public opinion, um, that could that could come up. Uh, eventually, mm.
2: okay, Anka. Um, thank you very much for coming on tonight. We've uh, we've enjoyed having you here, and uh, knowing that you are a political commentator, we might have you back on in the future, hopefully, to discuss some other Im- uh, issues outside of immigration and different things. Because I think you do have a very balanced and reasonable perspective on things. But the final segment, and he's got the- a great beard, and well, yeah. <laughs>
0: that that could be a positive or a negative depending on who's who's watching uh, positive feel, for me i feel <laughs>
2: like the, i feel like the drummer in zz top tonight
1: <laughs> <laughs> no beat at all <laughs> uh,
2: but uh, the final segment of the ex candidates is something that we call build your own fantasy government now the idea of this uh this segment is that you are in con- in control of the next parliament of australia and you can choose 5 to 6 Experts, politicians, former politicians, whoever it may be, maybe your neighbour or a friend or people are even choosing dead people lately, you can choose five or six people to head up the next government of, of Australia. Who would you choose?
0: Uh, look, I, I think um, a question like that, I, I probably would be focusing on, uh, on, on skills and contributions rather than personalities uh, so much. Um, I think a, a big issue that... That we have had uh, with parliaments in the past, uh, and I was I was having uh, this conversation with someone uh, not long ago, and I said, uh, you know, uh, the Labor Party was out of uh, federal government for what for nine years, right? So they were um, they lost government in two twenty thirteen, re-elected in two thousand twenty two, and um, and as soon as they got back in power, some of the people who were ministers <laughs> in their last government back in the you know t- between twenty. 20- 2007 and 2013 became ministers again um mm. the attorney general was the same penny wong was in government back then and, and many others bill shorten was still there even albanese himself was was, was there so it's basically you know the, the same uh the same uh, parties alternating in power uh, and uh, what i call the two and a half party cartel uh in my in my writings the two and a half party cartel alternating in power as if uh, as if they're you know, anointed by some higher power to to rule Australia in um, in perpetuity. I think that's the that's what we need to break out of, and we need to focus on. I mean, during the pandemic, we saw how um, governments um, you know just just didn't take advice from a broad range of uh, experts and 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 focused on getting uh, or choosing to get advice from people who were just going to. Um, yes, minister them, and um, and um, and just just uh, accept uh, the party line um, as a given. So, if I was ever in, in a position of responsibility, I'd be surrounding myself with uh, with people. Uh, with a broad range of uh, skills and with real life skills, not uh, I certainly would not be looking to uh, to select my team from people who have been lifelong politicians. I'd be looking at people with real life experience uh, who can who can actually contribute and and make a difference. All
1: right. That sounds good but we've got no names out of you, you got well, no we've got no names out of you've we've got we've got skill sets instead so you want people yeah no
0: I, yeah because i don't I don't want to you know I don't want to randomly select names um rather than uh, ra- rather i would i would I would be so- selecting on the basis of um
2: yeah
0: uh, you know on on, on skills and um, and experience but real life experience not not just someone who's um who's who's always ever been a, a politician hmm. uh since uh, since leaving school Well, well maybe i, the I, I to agree take with your
1: that. advice hmm Sorry,
0: Stephen, go for it. No, I was just
2: saying, I agree with that completely. I think you've made a very good point. Even though, yeah, I think there does need to be some real world experience in there, not just have people that have been part of maybe a young labor or liberal movement or part of the union movement. As we know, you know, there's a lot of lawyers in there as well. It's only one specialized group of people in there. And you do need a broad range of, as you said, skills in different areas. So, um, Mm. no, I agree with that completely. So, Thank you very much. Um, if people want to follow your writings, how can they follow you?
0: Uh, well, um, I'm uh, I'm most active on on LinkedIn. Um, I um, I write pretty much every day on uh, on various different uh, political issues. So if uh, if they want to to follow me there, um, that's the best place to, to get up to date information on what I'm um, what I'm writing about, what I'm talking about, uh, what I'm thinking about. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Awesome. Well, look, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. We've really enjoyed it. As I said, we'd love to have you back on some point in the future. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I uh, I've put the uh, I've put the link in the in the description. If anyone wants to jump on to buy me a coffee uh, and show your support for what Adam and I are doing, we'd much appreciate it. Uh, but uh, for everyone watching tonight, if you've enjoyed this, please share it far and wide. It does me does make a big difference when people share our content. It helps uh, these uh, interviews get out there so everyone can hear our experts like Ankur tonight and uh, try and pick his brain and his knowledge in different areas. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on tonight, Adam. Pleasure as always. And uh, we'll see everyone next time. Thank you very much. Thank
1: Thank you very much. See you.